I'd like to welcome you to this episode of the Frank DiMaggio Leadership Podcast. This podcast is uh, available to all who would subscribe to it or listen to it. And if you do happen to find it, leave a review on iTunes. And if you could, share with your own social media and your friends and people so that we can get a more widespread message out to the audience that's listening to podcasts and teachings abroad. I'm going to be covering the second installment in our thinking and our talks about Renaissance, Reformation, Revival, and Spiritual Awakenings, understanding that Revival and Spiritual Awakenings are much of a synonym, but there is a little bit of a difference between the two. We talked about the Renaissance as being a rebirth, and it was coming out of a dark age, where we historically get the term Dark Ages. The history of the church from about the 4th century to the 11th and 12th century were very dark periods of time spiritually in the deadness of the church and in many of the things that happened within the churches that caused uh, persecution of a number of true believers and a birthing of different kinds of educational systems to try to create leadership. That's why we have in the 3rd and 4th century the creation of monasteries, which were the forerunners to universities and the forerunners to seminaries because they were trying to uh, limit those that they trained and train them in an atmosphere where they could control the knowledge input and they could actually indoctrinize those priests and those people attending the monasteries and ultimately the universities that were created and then the seminaries that played into adding leadership to the churches. By the time you get to the 12th century, most leadership were coming out of these systems. There were small groups of other uh, spiritually minded type leaders that were trying to train smaller groups of people with more what we would call Holy Spirit activity and prayer and seeking God in a way that we understand to be New Testament style of prayer and worship. Overall, the doxologies of the church and the indoctrination of the church had become very sterile and dead, and there was a lot of controversy within the churches. With that came the great plagues of the end of the 12th and 13th century, end of the 14th century, and the great plagues and the death that that caused shifted all of the cultures in many nations of the world especially in Europe. And so as the plague and the death took root, culture began to come apart, and the church began to also redefine itself, not by purpose, but by uh, becoming a church that had lost its ability to really meet the needs of the people and speak to the people. They had lifted up the priest as the uh, people that would be protected by the church, And when they saw so many hundreds of priests die, uh, the mass population lost trust in the church's message. 
And within that, the church also created some other uh, financial uh, bondages uh, with the parishioners that caused even more degeneration within the attitude of the people toward the church. And so you have the setting of a very dark time in culture, uh, the death and the suffering and the plagues in church, the deadness and the lack of connection, the lack of communication. And so this was the setting for what the Renaissance would find itself building upon. So the Renaissance being birthed in the 14th century and into the 15th was a rebirthing. And so there was a great hunger in the people to have a rebirthing in the area of education and literature and architecture and arts and music and plays. And so uh, many of our great songwriters and uh, playwrights and people that uh, were some of the greatest artists that the world has ever known was birthed in the 1500s. And so those people in the area of the culture responding to the Renaissance began to recreate culture. And they recreated a message and a connectability to the common person, which uh, took great root uh, in all of the nations. And so we, we had a turnaround. We had a rebirthing. That's why we call it the Renaissance. And Italy was one of the, the main nations that had root in this Renaissance that was birthing and rebirthing the culture of that day. Along with that, there was a spiritual rebirthing and a spiritual regrouping that was going on in the church. Out of the dead orthodoxy of the church, out of the uh, strange activities within the Catholic Church and the mainline churches, there was a rebirthing of a focus toward Jesus and the scriptures. That came through a monk who was frustrated within the system. Uh, his name was Martin Luther, and Martin Luther nailed his thesis to the Wittenberg door in 1517, the 99 Theses, which you can look up and read if you like. It's actually very interesting. And so he denounced the practices of the known church of that day. He was persecuted. He had to go into hiding. Uh, in that, he wrote more and had more influence. And 1517, most uh, historians will call that the birthing of the Protestant movement, even though he was a Catholic priest. He began to form a uh, movement of thinking that would be the foundation to the Protestant movement and the Protestant church. He's the person who comes up with Christ alone by grace alone and scripture alone. It's Martin Luther who begins to push people away from all the activities that the church was uh, doing to uh, sell people salvation and get them through purgatory and all of the strange doctrines that have taken root in that day. It's Martin Luther who wakes the church up with his thesis. And with that, there's a number of other people that came to light in the 1500s. Uh, that began that movement of thought. And to this day, they are still the go-to people that we go back to. You have the uh, Luther and the Lutheran movement and all his writings. He wrote many, many books. And you have people go back to his writings and his understanding. But you also have Swingley of Switzerland, uh, who was also an uh, influential thinker or theologian. Uh, he also became a voice during that time period. Of course, John Calvin in Paris. 
He is the person who many people still read and go back to to this day called Calvinism. But Calvinism is traced back to a man, and that man was uh, in France. And that man was a thinker. He was a very uh, bright, intelligent, young thinker. And he was a person of Scripture, and he studied the Scripture diligently by uh, the the hours and the hundreds and thousands of hours. And he also created schools for training and schools for pastors and schools for leaders and writers. And he began to lift up the cross and the uh, whole atonement and what happens with redemption. And of course, with that came out of it, Tulip, the uh, definition of uh, Calvinism, which again, you can uh, research yourself, but it was a strong movement in that day because Again, some reaction there that he has reacted against the church being in control of your soul, the church being in control of everything you do, that there was a God in heaven who chose you, elected you, predestined you, and that you had a calling, and all of that was in Christ. Uh, John Knox, uh, next door to him in Scotland, uh, John Knox was also another one of those uh, 1500s uh, scholars and thinkers and pastors. He's actually first a pastor and then a writer and then a scholar. And he had such great influence on the thinking man and on the pulpit. He had uh, amazing influence upon the preachers of his day. Again, he was a Christ cross preacher. He was a man who identified with the scriptures as being expositional, exegetical preaching. Uh, he did not allow the high church to shape his sermons. They were shaped by the study of the Word of God and the study of the Scriptures and the looking to the cross. Uh, you have also, during that time period, uh, Jacob Arminius, where we get Arminianism from, uh, which was the opposite of Calvinism, and he was against unconditional predestination and preached a lot for man's freedom of choice. But when you really look at the deep roots and tenets of his doctrine, him and Calvin were definitely apart on a couple of the major doctrines and the extreme usage of them, but they were definitely in unity on many of the mainline doctrines that they both preached. During the 1500s, you had these kind of leaders that surface and their writings and still, Today, colleges and seminaries go back to these men, the Luthers, the Calvins, they go back to the John Knox, they, they go back to these people who had great influence. Out of the Lutheran movement came another movement called the Anabaptists, and the Anabaptists uh, had great influence uh, in preaching the gospel, and they reacted again to the church with sprinkling and everything to do with water baptism. And so they were called the rebaptizers because they believed that people should be dunked in water. They were called the dunkers. And so these people also in the 1500s, uh, Conrad Grable and Felix Mance and some of these people, you might have heard of Hubmeyer. Uh, these were the people who were the writers, the thinkers, and they caused an awakening to come to the church. And in that awakening, there was persecution so much so that in 1527, Felix Mance, when being uh, preaching about water baptism, he was drowned in water by the government. They drowned the man for preaching about rebaptism. Uh, this was a movement that had uh, good doctrine. Uh, they had roots in the scripture, and they were a movement of people 
that moved people back to some of the basics of Christianity. Also, there was a group that was identified called the Pietists. They uh, were a group, a movement of people, actually pretty widespread in uh, England and Europe, uh, and they were uh, the group that reacted against the uh, scholastic tendencies of the Lutheran movement and the Calvin and some of those movements that were much more uh, scholarly and uh, their disciplines and their studies and their writings uh, were high above many of the normal people. That's why the leaders had to be trained under them in a very specific way. The pietists came along with the the primacy of feeling, uh, Christian experience, a desire for the laity to have an active part, not just those that were trained in uh, scholastic ways and oratory. They wanted the uh, laity to be people that would be involved with their movement. Uh, they were experience-oriented. So if you wanted to read, uh, really, uh, what I, this is my own interpretation, but if you would look at charismatic people and people that would lean toward Christian experience over uh, scholasticism and other things, the pietists would be the people you'd want to read because they produced many books. And there's a lot of devotional stuff there because they were leaning back toward personal relationship to Jesus, a devotion to prayer, uh, solitary worship, uh, church congregations where lay people could be involved. Uh, they were people that had uh, not as much theology, uh, but I wouldn't say that they were breakers of theology, but they leaned toward Christian experience. Out of that, I would say out of that, others might say differently, but I would think uh, out of the pietist movement came the Puritans. Uh, the Puritans, because they desired to purify the church. Puritans was not Puritans because they wanted to have uh, a doctrine of holiness. People think of Puritans as holiness. That's not the case. The Puritans desired to purify the church. They would purge the church from all of its strange activities. And uh, they believed that the church still had a lot of baggage uh, in its structure and its activity and its authority. Authoritarianism, they were against that. They wanted the people to have more freedom and the people to have more voice and the uh, devotions of the church to be more personal. And so the Puritans, again, would be uh, some of the writings. I enjoy reading the Puritans personally. Uh, their lay preachers and their ideas of what they believed about uh, being a separatist and uh, the the writings that they produced, they they were the uh, foundation to the Harvard University and the first people that as uh, that uh, established that university were under the influence of the Puritan movement, the Puritan doctrines, and so uh, there's a lot in the Puritans that you would enjoy if you wanted to read. Just look it up, and there's a number of preachers and books that they produced. Uh, along with that, that's all in the 1500s and the early 1600s, you also have a group called the Quakers. Now, the Quakers had a large following in England, some 60,000. Uh, George Fox was the leader. Uh, they then came to America, actually to Pennsylvania, and uh, in that movement toward 
America, they actually ended up establishing a number of churches. I've been to some of their areas where they established churches, and they had amazing influence in their areas in Pennsylvania. And they're speaking the Word of God, and their meetings are are talked about, written about. Uh, again, I totally enjoy reading about the Quakers. They, You could call them early uh, Pentecostals, Charismatics, but that would be kind of just one slice of the pie about them. Uh, the Quakers were uh, a great discipline group. They were a dedicated group. Uh, they were a unified group, uh, and they established a great college up here where I live in the Pacific Northwest. We have the George Fox College, and that George Fox College and what George Fox did in this area all over the Northwest and the meetings they had. And with the Quakers, one of the things I was interested in early on and studying history, and I used to teach church history, so you could probably tell that by my meandering through all that kind of stuff. I hope it doesn't bore you. I hope it's interesting to you. But the Quakers were also huge, obviously, uh, on healing and the supernatural and miracles. And they would log them. They would write them down. They would have them logged in the services, and you can read about them to this day where they uh, have books that would log the miracles. George Fox logged a lot of his miracles. He wrote about the healing, and they're very inspiring that they had that kind of a faith to pray for and to move into the realm of the supernatural in their services. The The Quakers had a, a great deal of influence upon the uh, American scene, and they gave rise to other healing movements and healers such as A.B. Simpson uh, and the Missionary Alliance Church. And uh, you have people that uh, I could start going through, but I won't at this moment, uh, that were influenced by the Quaker doctrine and the Quaker healings. Another movement that came out of the 1600s was uh, out of John and Charles Wesley called the Methodists, so the Methodist movement. Uh, and they had... Uh, great doctrine, and they had great discipleship. If you want to read about discipleship, you would read John Wesley's writings. If you want to read about worship, you would read Charles Wesley's writings. If you want to know what kind of songs they sang, you would look up Isaac Watts and his hymns, because he was a product of that movement. And so you have with the Methodists uh, in Germany, you had Zinzendorf, uh, who had great influence in Germany, uh, and his missionary zeal is beyond anything that you would ever even read or imagine that a small group of people could do. Uh, Charles Wesley and John Wesley, obviously, uh, they were Oxford students, uh, and their small groups for progress, they called them, small group for progress and studies, fasting, communion, consecrated life, uh, they called themselves uh, the Holy Club. And out of the Holy Club at Oxford with the two brothers came what they were nicknamed as Methodists. Why? Because they used so many methods, principles, guidelines. Their ideas were set down in concrete. Their small groups that they reproduced for discipleship had a set order and a set agenda and a set doctrine, and they were called Methodists. Well, Methodism had great influence uh, both in England and America, and during the Great Awakenings, as you'll hear about, I'm going to talk about, uh, they had... Um, uh, an amazing amount of influence 
uh, with George Whitfield and some of these guys that came over and preached here in America and had thousands and thousands of people that gathered to them. Now, when we dip into the next era, which would be the 1700s, we're getting to where I want to get to and talk about awakenings and and revivals. Uh, you have the Great Awakening, which most people all agree with and date back, and they understand the Great Awakening uh, to be in the late 1700s here in America. The Great Awakening, most people would say, started with Jonathan Edwards, who was a graduate of Yale. Uh, from his pulpit went forth what most people would call the message and the fervor and the making of the Great Awakening, a revival which spread through all of the American colonies, which was only about 13 of them at that point. But that uh, awakening that came from his pulpit and from his writings, and again, if you want to read about revival and read about awakenings, read Jonathan Edwards. Uh, his uh, writings are said to be, and they are, because I've read them, tedious and long his sermons, and I've read them, uh, were tedious and long sermons. They say about his preaching that they, uh, that he was very dry in his delivery. He was not dynamic. He was not a great expositor. He was not a great, uh, in what we would call today, a great communicator. He was a disciplined thinker. He would deliver sermons like a lawyer would deliver uh, his materials. And uh, he was very convincing. And with that, he had uh, an amazing amount of fruit from his preaching from 1703 to 1758. He was the guy who did that. In 1792, you have another guy that comes upon the scene, and that's Charles Finney. And Charles Finney is definitely a product of the Great Awakening. Ordained Presbyterian, he was one of the greatest revivalists, and his writings on revival, which I still read, are very systematic. He... he uh, was, uh, I guess I like him because he gave so many points, you know. He would have 25 things that hindered revival, 50 things that would uh, be the fruit of revival, 40 things that you should be aware of that revival uh, could be a pressure upon you. Uh, there would be churches that would have 10 things to do to welcome revival into your pulpit and etc. So his writings and his preaching, Charles Finney, uh, was a great revivalist, new spiritual vitality came from him, and he was a partner about the same time as George Whitfield, who was a great missionary from England to America, uh, preached to open-air crowds, many hundreds of thousands of people in those days, listened to this man with no microphone, no screen, nothing. He would just stand up in his little wooden pulpit that they built for him that would lift him up high enough for thousands to see. And he had such a wonderful voice. Uh, his voice was so clear and so deep that the people could listen to him. Literally, he would preach for one, two to three hours. And people would listen to him. They would fall out under the Spirit. They would get saved by the hundreds and the thousands. Uh, so he, again, is a product of the Great Awakening. Uh, out of that... Also came A.B. Simpson in 1800s. Uh, he was another man that that uh, uh, tagged onto the Great Awakening with his uh, specific message of healing. And his writings are so inspirational. A.B. Simpson, so inspirational about healing and faith and how to move in faith. 
and then we have, which I'll take up in our next uh, podcast, we have the turn of the century, the 1906 uh, Azusa Street Revival. And the Azusa Street Revival is one that is known by most people as one of the great revivals in our nation. Most people would, uh, if you've been around church at all, you would have heard the term Azusa Street Revival, the 1906 revival that took place. And that revival also caused an awakening. Revivals and awakenings are generally synonyms. The larger the geography a revival covered, the greater the tendency to call it an awakening. And so we'll look at the revival of the turn of the century and some of the tenets as we move toward present day. I just want to get and talk to you about revival in our day, what we could look for, what kind of signs there would be, uh, what would be the preparatory acts that we could uh, uh, maybe enter into during this time period, uh, coming out of, as the Renaissance did, out of out of a very dark time in our own nation and the world right now, and so much confusion and chaos and darkness and death and suffering and, and the church struggling and, and people having a lot of different opinions and philosophical opinions and doctrinal opinions, and there's so many things going on. We need to focus on the man Jesus Christ. We need to focus on the doctrine of the cross. We need to understand faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone. We need to get back to that and we need to expect, and I'm going to talk about this, how should we expect revival to come to our nation, to the nations of the world, and we're going to talk about that expectation. Don't miss the next exciting podcast as I deal with uh, revivals in their making and what happens with revivals. Have a great day. God bless you. Thank you for listening. And if you can please share on your social media with friends, we'd love for you to leave a rating review on iTunes, which helps the podcast. Until we meet again in the podcast, God bless you and have a great day.